This episode of the Tech Money Podcast is sponsored by Capital Area Tax Consultants. Capital Area Tax Consultants is a virtual tax and accounting firm that specializes in helping high net worth individuals navigate the complexities of the tax code. While our team of tax pros are well-versed in all things tax, our areas of expertise include rental real estate and equity compensation. With our comprehensive tax planning services, our one goal is to help clients maximize savings and minimize their tax liability each year. At Capital Area Tax Consultants, we believe in pricing transparency and flat fees. Before engaging with us, you'll receive an upfront quote in black and white with a description of any services to be performed. This way, there are no hidden surprises. So don't wait. Reach out to us today to experience a better approach to taxes at www.capgllc.com. Again, that web address is www.capgllc.com. Welcome to the Tech Money Podcast, where the worlds of technology and personal finance collide. Hosted by certified financial planner, speaker, blogger, and self-proclaimed personal finance nerd, Malcolm Etheridge. Each episode aims to make you just a little bit smarter about your money, all from the perspective of the tech professional. Without further delay, here's your host. Hey there, listeners. Malcolm here. And on today's show, we're talking about charitable giving. More specifically donor advised funds. Traditionally, people think about charitable giving simply as writing a check to a few nonprofit organizations near the end of the year and then claiming a tax deduction when the time comes. And while that approach can certainly be valuable, it's a bit limited in its ability to maximize your philanthropic impact or minimize your income tax liability. I recently wrote a blog post titled ways to make your charitable giving count come tax time. And surprisingly, that got a ton of traffic and sparked some unexpected conversations with some of our existing clients. While one of the major positive effects of supporting charitable causes is simply to feel good about giving, what and how you give can be just as important as how much and who you give it to. Deciding which assets to donate and how best to structure giving is where the real tax strategies of charitable giving come into play. And since you're going to be giving one way or another, either to the IRS or to a cause that you actually care about, you might as well be the one to make that decision. So I decided to call up someone I know who knows more than I do about this subject and have a deeper conversation. Mary Jovanovich is a senior relationship manager with Schwab Charitable and is also a subject matter expert on all things donor advised funds. Full disclosure here, my firm custodies our clients' assets with Charles Schwab, which for those who don't know is basically a sophisticated jargony way of saying that we are franchisees of Charles Schwab's platform, essentially. So with that brief introduction, Welcome, Mary Jovanovich, to the Tech Money Podcast. Thank you so much, Malcolm. I'm really excited to be here, and I look forward to our conversation about donor-advised funds. I do, too. This is actually something that I personally get excited about simply because it's a way to be efficient with your, your taxes. For a lot of people, charitable giving is something they always think about but don't necessarily put a lot of effort and planning into, and so I think maybe this will help just a few people. So before we get too much into it, I breezed through your resume a little bit while I was introducing you. What did I miss? (laughs) Well, I've uh, been at Schwab for 14 years and was Schwab Charitable for five years. And I live in Indianapolis, Indiana. I'm a born and raised Buckeye. I love everything that has to do with philanthropy. It's definitely my passion. That's why I'm so excited to be here today. 
We're going to spend most of our time talking about donor advised funds, right? As I promised in my intro, but I want to talk about you for a second, a little bit more, if you don't mind, because I know, as you just mentioned, charitable giving is a big deal for you and is basically a part of your, your DNA so much so that you went and got a master's degree in philanthropy. Like, what is that about? Prior to joining Schwab Charitable, all my degrees and professional licenses reflected my expertise in the financial industry. And philanthropy, like I said, has always been a passion. So I decided that I should educate myself in the same way that I did for my career in the securities industry. So my original intention was just to get a certification in philanthropy. But then once I started, I couldn't stop. I kept taking class after class after class. And to the Mm. point, it only made sense to get a master's. Is there something like specific about philanthropy or more specifically giving away assets to support charities that just kind of does it for you? Like that's that's a unique thing to know at a, a younger age that you really care about and want to do. I think it it's my upbringing. So my parents were very philanthropically inclined. Um, my father was a Boy Scout leader. So hmm. giving back and helping others has always been a part of my life. Once I got this job and I started the, the coursework at the Lilly School of Philanthropy, it just, I was just fascinated by everything. And I just wanted to learn more so that I could help more people give with more intention and give with more efficiency and effectiveness and have a bigger impact. And you even serve on some boards now, right? Dedicated to advancing women in the workplace. Uh, One I know specifically that a number of our listeners can probably identify with being technology executives, right? Is Dress for Success. Can you tell us a little bit about that organization and the work you do there? Absolutely. More than ever, it's important for women to have access to social services like Dress for Success because they've been hit the hardest by this pandemic. And in December, I don't know if you're aware of this, women lost a total of 156,000 jobs while men gained 16,000 jobs. So women have lost 55% of all of the net 9.8 million jobs since February of last year. And what's great about Dress for Success, it's a worldwide organization headquartered in New York City with over 150 affiliates in the U.S. and 25 international locations. And the mission of Dress for Success is to empower women to achieve economic independence. And they do that by providing a network of support, professional attire, and the development tools to help them thrive in the workplace and in life. And so I serve as as an emeritus member for the Indianapolis location. And most people will equate Dress for Success as strictly a clothing nonprofit, but it's so much more than that. They offer a career center as well as the professional women group to help women get back into the workforce and and have success. So you mentioned one thing that that one way that COVID has impacted your operations or your focus in the sense that uh, women have disproportionately been pushed out of the workforce because of the virus and everything that's happened, you know, behind it. Did you also see a flood of women looking to drop off their business suits since they're not going back to the office anytime soon? We have. It's it's great that you asked that question because since people know that I serve on the board, they've actually called me up and said, Mary, I'm not going to be using all of these suits. And hmm. and and unfortunately, some of them have gained weight and have said that they need to buy some new clothes and they're not quite sure when they're going to be able to get that weight back off. So they're like, can we donate some of these clothes that are a little bit too tight right now? And so I'm like, absolutely. That COVID-15. 
Yes. <laughs> that is a, you know, that's a direction I didn't even think about. I was just thinking like, we're not in office settings anymore, right? You and I are in our virtual yeah. studio. And so I just figured that would be the reason, but not necessarily yeah. that, you know, folks have had a year plus a year and a half or whatever of eating ice cream and everything else but in large quantities that, yeah. you know, we're trying to stay away from. So that's interesting um, that, yeah. that that's the, the, the driver, whatever works, right? Like whatever gets the donations flowing by all means. Absolutely. We teed it up and, and I, I don't want to, uh, to, to tease it out too much further. Let's talk about donor advised funds for a moment, because that is a term that, Probably most people listening to this haven't actually heard of before, even though, like I said, I, I wrote what I thought was a fantastic blog post about it. I know not everybody reads everything that 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 I write. So can you first just define what a donor advised fund is and does for us? Sure. So a donor advised fund, it's sometimes going to be referred to as a DAF, so D-A-F, but think of it as a charitable savings account. So it's really simple to open a donor advised fund account online or with the help of your financial advisor. And a donor will make a contribution of cash or a non-cash asset. And they're generally going to be eligible for a tax deduction in the year that they contribute if they itemize. So once the funds are in a donor advised fund account, the donor can then invest them for potential tax-free growth and then recommend grants to their favorite ch charities whenever it makes sense for them. It's just important to note that any contribution is an irrevocable gift because of the IRS rules. So once the money goes into the account, it does have to go to charity at some point in time. Once they are accepted, they're no longer going to be a part of that donor's personal investments. Now the donor is going to act as an advisor on the account. And that's why we refer to it as a donor advised account, because now they become an advisor on the account. So when, where, and how much to grant, that's their decision. So I'm not necessarily writing the check from my own checkbook the way I normally would. I am calling up my person at Charles Schwab, for example, and saying, I want to send $500 or $5,000 or $50,000 to Dress for Success, for example, for the 2021 tax year, make it happen. That's basically my role after I've donned the funds. Once you open the account and fund it, you can actually do all of that granting online. So you can, of course, you know, work with your advisor or work with us to help with that granting. But we do make it very simple to do the granting online, and it works a lot like a bill pay system. So it's, it's very simple and efficient and very effective. I love it. Now you've taken the fun out of it. See, I, I had this fantasy in my head that I get to call up Chuck Schwab himself and say, I oh. want you to direct. Uh, see, now, like, because we've gotten so technologically advanced, it's just click and point. I'm joking. That probably works better for most people who do a lot of their financial uh, housekeeping at 2 a.m. anyway. So it probably is is for the better. But what's interesting to me, the way that donor advised funds are set up is that they initially were, you know, thought of in the context of estate planning, right? It's a way to, as you pointed out, get the asset out of my estate so that come estate tax time after I've passed away and left assets to my, my beneficiaries, the asset no longer exists in my estate. And I don't have to worry about the IRS or my state trying to come and get a piece from estate tax, but they've become a lot more popular means to receive a deduction for charitable giving now, especially under the new tax rules, which is an interesting shift, in my opinion, from kind of an older 
uh, lesser known, lesser thought of vehicle to now being a very popular way to uh, get more tax efficient. So but one of the questions I get on a regular basis from clients, friends, whoever, when it comes to charitable giving is whether or not it makes sense for them to establish a family foundation. And I know that a donor advised fund is similar to a family foundation, but it's not quite there. So could you give us a little bit of the the difference between a donor advised fund and a family foundation? Yeah, DAFs differ from private foundation in a variety of ways. And I try to simplify the process and look at it from five different concepts. So the first concept is about ownership. So when you contribute to a donor advised fund, you relinquish control and ownership of those assets because remember, it's an irrevocable gift. But that's not the case with the private foundation. You still own the asset in the private foundation. So that's the first difference. Mm -hmm. Next, I think about legal and administration. So to open up a donor advised fund, you simply fill out an application and Schwab Charitable has no opening minimum balance requirement. But establishing a private foundation typically typically is going to involve some legal fees, filing fees, the potential, um, the need to hire some staff, maybe to lease some office space. You're going to have guidance by the attorneys and CPAs. They will generally suggest that a minimum investment of $1 million to $2 million. Next, let's look at tax deductions. And that's where the biggest difference is going to come into play. Cash contribution to a donor-advised fund is deductible up to 60% of a donor's adjusted gross income, and appreciated non-cash assets that have been held for more than one year are deductible up to 30% of adjusted gross income. So similar contributions to a private foundation are going to be limited to 30% cash and 20% of a donor's Mm. adjusted gross income for non-cash assets. But Contributions of the appreciated assets to the donor advised fund are also also deductible at full fair market value. Private foundation, those assets are generally going to be limited to a donor's cost basis when contributed to a private foundation. Interesting. So it's these favorable deduction limits that make it a DAF and especially attractive option for donors who have accumulated highly appreciated assets Mm -hmm. in addition to the preferable tax treatment. And finally, the donor advised fund can avoid the 1% to 2% tax on net investment income that can apply to private foundations. And there are two more things to look at. The payout rules. So you're probably familiar, private foundations are subject to a 5% mandatory annual distribution. That doesn't apply to a donor advised fund, but most fund sponsors like Schwab Charitable will have an internal policy to encourage granting. The National Philanthropic Trust's latest report on the donor-advised fund sector shows that DAF grant payout has exceeded 20% for every year on record. So they don't need that 5% rule, to be quite honest. And then granting, private foundations can support individuals directly where donor-advised funds can't. So if the foundation intends to make a grant to an individual, let's say for travel study, a scholarship, or a similar purpose to advance some similar person, they have to get written approval of the selection process so that they follow IRS rules and regulations. Otherwise, they'll be subject to a particular tax. This type of individual granting is never allowed in a donor advised fund. A few things that you you, you pointed out in there that I want to make sure that I put in bold and italics and underline Mm -hmm. as best I can. So normally when people ask me 
about a donor advised fund versus the the private family foundation. The simple answer I give them is if you're not going to be managing and gifting a few million dollars at a minimum, like there's no reason to talk to me about a family foundation, right? Like to your point, the administrative expenses alone make it prohibitive for most people, right? So what you just gave as far as the tax implications and how much of the deduction you get for the contribution versus one versus the other, I think makes it makes a significant difference. But then one other key thing that you pointed out in there is the fact that in a donor advised fund, I get to contribute, say, one hundred thousand dollars in 2021. And I don't have to gift any of that away at any point, 10 years, 20 years, whatever I wanted to wait to gift it. So those funds could be invested inside of the donor advised fund and grow beyond that hundred thousand dollars that I initially contributed. And then I give it away at some later date. So there's no mandate that says, you know, I've got to give away a certain a certain percentage by a certain date, which I think is really unique and flexible and works great for people who maybe you have a really big thing happen in one year. Like maybe you have a, a ton of shares in a company that you work for vest in one year. So you need to get some of your assets out of your taxable assets out for that year. But then the following years, life goes back to normal and you don't have that tax issue. So just something to be aware of the flexibility of it, I think is is huge. But then also something I've seen, or I guess I could say I've learned from some of my wealthier clients is that the moment you give to a charity, your name ends up on a list and that list gets sold. And especially for people that gift larger dollars. And then you've got a number of organizations emailing and calling you, asking for you to donate to their particular cause. And in some cases, you know, it's an organization you've never even heard of. And especially for older people, this happens, right? So people always assume that older people want to be generous and donate to things. One of the other things that I like about the DAF is that it allows it allows me to have a conversation with clients where we set parameters for who and what they donate to. And then it gives them a way to turn down all of the other folks and organizations that come asking for gifts by putting the blame on a third party. As an example, the two causes that I personally give to every year are education first, because I believe that education is the great equalizer in this country. And then second, I give to causes related to hunger and homelessness, because I personally believe that every single one of us is just two bad decisions away from being homeless. By defining those parameters and in writing, It allows me to honestly tell anyone who comes along asking me to donate to anyone else, worthy cause or not, that what they're asking me about doesn't fit within the parameters of my gifting plan. And it's 100 percent true. Right. So I don't have to feel bad about it. And I can also say I would carved out, you know, X amount to give to my two causes this year. And I've already exhausted those funds. So let's talk next year. Right. So the donor advised fund to me allows clients to do that without having to put all of the uh, other pieces in place from a, from an administrative perspective to create that family office that does the same thing. Because I know that that's sometimes the thing that people uh, like about the, I mean, that family office, the family foundation. That's one of the things that people like sometimes is that you have those parameters, your stated mission and that sort of thing. And so the causes that you gift to or what people can apply to receive for, it's on paper and kind of out of your hands. Obviously, there's no restrictions around giving to anybody else from a donor advised fund, and those parameters don't go on any sort of official account document, but it's just helpful to have that written down somewhere and still have the flexibility to do all the other things. What I like to say is that donor advised funds are democratizing philanthropy. You no longer have to be a millionaire 
to be philanthropically inclined. This gives you the ability to feel really good about your intentions and really making an impact in your community, either locally, you know, nationally, or even internationally, that it's really democratizing philanthropy. From a financial perspective, right, cash donations to charity have become less valuable to donate donors than they were prior to the passage of the Tax Cuts and Jobs, Jobs Act in 2017, right? And the reason for that is that the act doubled the standard deduction, which made it unnecessary to itemize for most households in America. Most people fall under that 25-ish thousand for a couple and uh, 12 and a half for an individual. I think it was the Tax Policy Institute that reported that 90% or so of people took the standard deduction the first year after the TCJA was passed, and then it's been rising since then. But another thing that has happened as a result is is the concept of stacking, right? Charitable donations among uh, those people looking to maximize the impact of their charitable giving. Can you explain that strategy and its benefits a little bit? You're spot on, Malcolm. Um, when the Tax Cuts and Job Act was passed in 2017, and it took effect in 2018, it did have an impact on fewer Americans being able to itemize their tax returns. And most are taking advantage of that higher standard deduction, like you said. Some donors may expect that the the total of their itemized deductions for 2021 will be slightly below the level of their standard deductions. Mm -hmm. So they could take the standard deduction, but they could also find it beneficial to bunch, stack, or front load their charitable contributions for future years. This could push their total itemized deductions to a level where it might make sense for them to itemize their deductions in future years. So let's look at this more closely. What I appreciate the most about using a donor-advised fund in this scenario is that the donor-advised fund doesn't require you to give more money this year. They could fund their giving this year and then recommend grants over a longer period of time. For example, let's say you're a married couple filing jointly, and when you look at all of your deductions totally, it's $23,000. Of that $23,000, is a don is something that you always give. No matter what's going on in your life, you're always going to give that $10,000 to some public charity. Okay. Because the $23,000 is below the standard deduction of 24800 in 2020 and below 25100 which is the standard deduction in 2021, most people are going to take the standard deduction. Right. Over two years, they would claim a total deduction of $49,900. However, if they would stack those donations and put the $20,000 in in the first year, now what's going to happen is instead of having $23,000 in deductions, they're going to have $33,000 in itemized deductions. So now they're going to itemize their tax return and then take the standard deduction in 2021 of $25,100. So I just wanted to point it out while you're on the point, as I mentioned before, just because you make that larger donation for multiple years at one time. So say you did it in 2021. You know, as you mentioned, you normally have a pattern of giving $10,000 a year. That doesn't mean you have to give the entire amount that you contributed in the year that you contributed. You can actually still give that same $10,000 a year over the next three years or two years or however you decided to do it. But you get the deduction in the year that you gift the cash or whatever asset to the donor advised fund. So are you on a roll? But I just thought that was really important. To, no, to no, no, no. It is really important. And it's it's really important to point out because by doing this strategy, by putting that $20,000 in sooner rather than later, 
and, and itemizing and then taking the standard deduction, mm-hmm. that couple actually is going to get an additional $8,200 of tax deductions just over those two years. And that's what we like to call tax alpha. Yes. So that extra yes. $8,000 you just identified for me is what I love to call tax alpha on this show. And that's the, <laughs> the, the buzzword that right means that I'm doing my job properly as a planner. If I can show you how to take $8,000 back from the IRS, if you will. So that that is is to me the biggest piece of this is that you, you, you're getting the best of both worlds as long as you can plan these things out in advance and not necessarily be so reactive when tax time comes and kind of just here's what we did, here's how much we owe, and we'll see you again next year, right? It's a, it's about planning out the next three, five, 10 years and how these things are going to impact you in the future versus simply one year at a time. You can probably hear me getting excited in this. And yes, because I love the idea of charitable giving and helping to support causes and all those wonderful, warm and fuzzy things. But talking to me about saving money on my taxes makes me just as warm and fuzzy and tingly. I'm, I'm, I'm really in favor of these things. A good deal of our listeners, right, happen to be executives in technology. And as I'm sure you know, mm-hmm. that means these folks are receiving a large share of their total compensation every year in the form of company stock. One or more of the advantages of the donor advised fund is its ability to receive shares of stock and give its donor a deduction for the market value of the shares contributed, right? So it's, you know, we talked about gifting cash, but could you say a little bit more about gifting publicly traded securities, stocks, bonds, mutual funds, ETFs, any of that kind of stuff to the DAF as well? Sure. And especially for your executives that might be listening and who are charitably inclined, there's certain equity compensation awards or the stock acquired upon an award exercising or vesting that can make excellent gifts to charity because of the potential tax benefits like you stated Mm -hmm. before. These investments typically will have a low basis and may have a significant current market value that's going to result in a large capital tax bill when sold. And like you said, mm-hmm. nobody, everybody wants to limit their tax liability. If you itemize your deductions on your tax return instead of taking the standard deduction, donating these awards could potentially unlock tax benefits and additional funds for your charities of choice. So you can potentially eliminate the capital gains tax you would incur if you sold the stock yourself and donated the proceeds. But if you choose to pass on the savings in the form of more giving, you may increase the amount available to charity by up to 20%, and that's huge. Hmm. And if you contribute appreciated non-cash assets to a donor-advised fund or another public charity, you can generally claim a fair market value charitable deduction, in, like you said, in the tax year in which the gift is made. Remember, deductions for contributions to private foundations are generally limited to cost basis. That's not the case with a donor-advised fund. And the most common forms of equity compensation awards are non-qualified stock options, incentive Mm -hmm. stock options, restricted stock units, and restricted stock awards. The awards themselves are generally not transferable, so they can't really be given to charity. But once these awards are vested or exercised, the underlying and the underlying stock is held for more than one year. That's the most important part. It has to be a long-term holding. Mm-hmm. They are smart gifts to charity. But not all equity compensation awards are treated the same for purposes of the charitable income tax deduction. Mm-hmm. 
So it's important to note that like someone at Schwab Charitable, if we were facilitating the gift, we're going to work with the company's general counsel to satisfy the requirements of Rule 144 to remove that restrictive legend or affiliate status prior to the contribution. I would really recommend for those who might be interested in learning more, maybe speak to their tax advisor or, or you, of course, for more information. But it sounds like if I'm understanding correctly, you're getting me out of my vesting requirements in some cases a little bit sooner than I would have been able to do on my own simply because I'm gifting the shares and the tax code is a little bit more favor favorable to charitable gifts than if I were keeping the shares for my own personal piggy bank. Yeah. And well, each each one of those compensation awards are are really unique in, in how mm-hmm. they're able to be utilized in charitable giving. So it's really a case by case scenario, but it's one that we can always have a conversation about and let people understand what their options are and when they can actually do the donation and up to what amount. I always warn clients that it's more valuable to gift the stock to the donor advised fund instead of selling the stock first then paying the taxes and then wanting to donate the cash. That's usually when clients uh, call us up and and say, you know, I, I, you know, I sold my Microsoft stock. I sold my Amazon stock. I've got $180,000 extra for for the year as an example. And I want to gift some of it away. And immediately hand goes on head and Malcolm frustratedly says, why didn't you call me two weeks ago before you executed the trade? We could have, you know, we could have saved you a few dollars or let it count a little bit more. Right. The charity, I'm sure, is always glad to have the shares rather than the cash because they know that they've gotten a little bit more than they could have gotten if they just received the the, uh, air quotes around just right. A, A gift is a gift. But you know what I mean? But we've established, right, that we can donate company stock we've accumulated over a decent period of time that's got a low basis and would otherwise kill us on taxes if we were to sell. But how does that differ from me simply choosing to donate the stock directly to the charity, you know, I ultimately want to give it to? Why do I have to gift it to this middleman, the DAF, mm-hmm. instead of gifting it to the charity directly? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's one that I get frequently when I host my donor events or my webinars now because of COVID. Mm-hmm. And the answer is really, it depends on the donor and their intentions. So let's go back to that bunching example of $20,000 that I spoke about earlier. If you're comfortable giving away the full $20,000 this year in 2021, then go for it. Go direct. There's no need to have the middleman, like you said. If your intention is to give that $20,000 over time, That's where the power of the donor advised fund comes into play. It's really helping many donors who want to give over time or contribute non-cash assets to a vehicle, to to, excuse me, not to a vehicle, but to a variety of charities. But they need a tax deduction now and this year because of a normal than larger tax bill. So it's all about what the donor's trying to accomplish with the gift itself. For me personally, I love my donor advised fund because of the ease and simplicity of doing donations now. I no mm-hmm. longer have to keep all of these donation receipts in a in a shoebox like I used to. It's something that my mom taught me. <laughs> it has it's it's and it's made the experience of giving more joyful and I'm more engaged now than when I was in the past when I would write a check or or use a credit card. That was really transactional and now mm-hmm. I'm more intentional with my giving. 
maybe it keeps you on a calendar, right? Like you mentioned the folks that have a habit of giving $10,000 a year. Let's say you gift to your church, for example, or your synagogue or whoever, and you may even have it set up like on a regular ACH where monthly it comes out and that's you paying your tithe. But there's also people who aren't as organized or who aren't as consistent, right? There's the folks that are in the December 31st crowd where, you know, somewhere around the last week of the year, I realized that I meant to give this money away and I haven't yet. And I better do it before the year's over so I can write it off. Right. And then there's the folks that pre-COVID, right, we were all going to these banquets and these charity events and all these kind of things where that's the place where you normally give. And you have your two or three events that you go to, especially here in Washington, D.C. This is like charity event capital of the world. You go to these things, you write your check, and that's where you you write it off. But it sounds like, if I'm understanding you correctly, this gives you the ability to kind of systematize that a little better. And it gives you the ability to be on a schedule and have some organization around it because not everybody is as good about keeping all of their receipts in a shoebox and, you know, <laughs> calendaring yeah. things out and that sort of thing. I was just going to say, you can set all of that up just like you said, systematically. We do offer what we call reoccurring grants where you can do that tithing approach like you suggested. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing, sometimes you might get a solicitation in the mail and you might not remember if you've given that year or not. You can go online and you can check. And so everything's hmm. kept online. You can you can determine, oh, yeah, I've, I've given so much already this year. or Yeah, I can afford to give a little bit more. So it's it's really like you said, from a organizational standpoint, it, it's really nice because it's all kept there. And you can even see your granting pattern history. That's what I really like because you can see to the causes that you support the most and what sectors they fit in. So if someone says, you know, what charities do you support? You can really look at those charts that we have online and you can say something like, well, I really support education or the arts or health and human services. So it, it, it enables you to better understand your own giving patterns that maybe you weren't aware of. So my last question, and I promise this is my last one, and it has absolutely (laughs) nothing to do with your love of philanthropy. But let's say for a second that you never discovered the wonderful world of philanthropy, uh, by the way, but money is not a factor in your decision at all in answering this question. What do you think you'd be doing right now? That's really easy for me, and it's going to align very closely to to the things that you support. Education. I would be a teacher. I would be a kindergarten teacher. I love children. I love the fact that you have the ability to help influence them and help them understand the the rules and regulations of the world, so to speak, and, and just teaching them how to be good citizens and just help them create a culture of caring. So if I didn't have to worry for money whatsoever, I would be a kindergarten teacher. That is awesome and a really high note to uh, to go out on. I, I think re- really what that means is just pay our kindergarten teachers teachers a little better. And we'll have, uh, <laughs> yes, we'll all, have our teachers, down the door. all our teachers, all our teachers. Yeah. But yeah, so on on that high note, I'm going to stop before I bring us down. So, Erica, go ahead and close <laughs> the show, sir. Yeah, I'll tell you what, if we didn't love Mary for all the work she's doing already, that last answer just sealed the deal. <laughs> I mean, right. That, that well, was fantastic. 
man, that, that was great. And uh, the only other comment I have is, Malcolm, your whole you, the COVID-15 thing. I'm working on the COVID-19. It's Oreo cookies. <laughs> and it's a problem. So, <clears throat> but that's just me. Maybe that's just, maybe I'm an enigma. Anyway, lastly, I want to thank you, the listening audience, for tuning in and listening to the Tech Money Podcast with Malcolm Etheridge. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when Malcolm comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. This makes it much easier to share these podcasts with your colleagues. Again, thanks for listening today. For everyone at Tech Money, our hope is that this show helped make you just a little smarter about your money. This has been the Tech Money Podcast. For more information on today's topic, to review the show notes, or to catch up on past episodes, be sure to check out malcolmetheridge.com slash podcast. And if you have an idea for a show topic that you'd like us to cover, or you want to send us feedback, the web address again is malcolmetheridge.com. You can also find Malcolm across all social media platforms at Malcolm on Money. This episode was written and created by Malcolm Etheridge, with the production, the editing and sound controls powered by top advisor marketing, Crowdmouth. This has been a Malcolm on Money original. Thank you for listening. The information shared in this recording and by its guests represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not represent the views or opinions of the host. This content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. This content is not, nor is it intended to be a substitute for professional financial advice. It is always recommended that you seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your personal financial situation. This episode of the Tech Money Podcast is sponsored by Capital Area Tax Consultants. Capital Area Tax Consultants is a virtual tax and accounting firm that specializes in helping high net worth individuals navigate the complexities of the tax code. With our comprehensive tax planning services, our one goal is to help clients maximize savings and minimize their tax liability each year. Our team of certified public accountants and enrolled agents is well-versed in the latest tax laws, ensuring that you capitalize on every opportunity for strategic tax optimization. We anticipate changes and keep you up to date on opportunities to potentially reduce your tax bill in the future. With a focus on precision and strategic planning, we are your trusted partner both during tax season and throughout the year. So don't wait. Reach out to us today to experience a better approach to taxes at www.capgllc.com. Again, that web address is www.capgllc.com. Um...